Last week we heard about both a householder and a, quote, certain man from Jesus' famous triptych of parables about lostness turned foundness. A sheep and a coin and a son. Not just love and grace and diligence on display, but actual resurrection. Remember the last lines? My son was once lost, but now he's found, was once dead, but now he lives. The implication of all this starts to set in. If God is the Father, not just waiting for us, but running to seek us out, then that makes us the ones over and over again who have left home, either with our bodies seeking some sort of fulfillment, or maybe we're like the older brother who have stayed home physically but been far away with our hearts. Either way, we need a homecoming of sorts. Along these lines, we might expect the following chapter to further elaborate, a householder and a certain man. But then we're thrown the loopiest and most unexpected curveball on a hitter's count. I don't blame you if your timing's a little off or your knees are a little buckled. We must remember, as good readers of Scripture, one-to-one correlations, allegories with one character always equaling one person and rarely another. And normally, the story is more about you as the lost younger brother uh, than it ever is about me. That these allegories rarely happen in the subversive and explosive world of Jesus' parables. We shouldn't just assign characters in order to relieve tension or to generate some sort of logic to make sense of things. Perhaps as easy as it is to do in the lost stories, this parable that lives next door is meant to kind of destabilize that approach a little bit. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think that this parable, I could kind of hear the Spirit saying, and the image I got was, was that the Spirit was writing like with a f- kind of a finger and messy capital letters and wet concrete of my imagination about God. Don't get too comfortable. You don't know where this is going and you can't control it. Don't get too comfortable. So Luke re- Luke records, as only Luke would, a story about a steward in a chapter that's all about money. Luke t- uh, tells the gospel in such a way that is vitally important about Money and possessions and the poor. Jesus goes on in this parable about a manager who gets fired for mismanaging. And then on the way out the door, with an eye towards his own future, out of desperation, he starts cooking the books to make people like him. Because this manager seems so self-aware, it's kind of crazy. He says of himself, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too proud to beg. This would never happen these days. This is why nowadays they escort people out of the building when they fire them. They change their passwords. They take away their key codes. Nowadays, there are no two-week notices. There are just non-compete clauses and swift cutoffs, but not in this parable story world. In the man's efforts to get right, or at least to curry favor, he cuts down a debt of 900 gallons of olive oil He cuts it in half to 450 gallons. This is olive oil from like 150 olive trees, about three years worth of wages. 
The second daddy cancels is from 1,000 bushels of wheat to 800 bushels. That could feed 150 people for a year. It came from about 100 acres of wheat crop, equaled about seven and a half years of wage labor. He knocked about two years of labor from each, basically making these debts actually payable. I think that's like a hidden commentary in here. This is the sort of crushing debt that's never payable. This is the compounding credit card interest that is just destined to sink people. Th this is predatory lending that um, he cancels in order to make it possible for these people. You, you think, though, if Jesus were in his right mind, the next move of this parable would be something, at least a nod or a gesture towards judgment about the man's dishonesty. Surely there's got to be some accounting. His selfishness, his injustice, it can't go unnoticed. Even though it's positively affected a couple of folks, how could things run if middle management went around operating so erratically? Jesus tells other parables about money with a range of wisdom from conventional to risky, like the parable of the talents. Do you remember those? Or next week's a continuation of Luke 16. But here... He gives this irresponsible middle manager kudos for cheating out of his own riches. What in the world can be going on? We're going to look at five things, and I hope, I hope when you hear these, you're, you're not just sitting here hoping for me to give you um, everything this passage says. Hopefully these five things open up plenty of other possibilities or give you notes for different directions to go in here. Uh, so I, I want to list five things that I noticed in my reading. First, that this parable is in some way about hospitality. The man recognizes, says, uh, and Jesus describes in here, he says, people who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than are people who belong in the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes hospitality, making room and making friends is of such value, it's so essential that this man's kind of haphazard, irresponsible, shady, rules-adjacent, any-means-necessary approach seems not just appropriate, but sort of smart when it's that important. Jesus draws out a parallel to the sort of hospitality we all hope for and experience in the very life of God. Our Eternal homes are not just some sweet by-and-by place in time that we'll go to sometime there and then, but they start now. They have happened in Christ by the Spirit. God is making room for us. This has been accomplished. Every time we draw near to God, a spot at the table has already been opened for us. This man's hypothetical actions reveal this impulse and this desire, this deep need for home. All this mismanagement and the consequences thereof only really matter if they close down rather than open up room at the table. So this man is opening up room for himself at the table. In real life, as in the previous story of the prodigal son, the verdict has already been made, and this is the good news. The feast is already set. The ring and robe and shoes are polished and ironed and shine and already tailored to your exact specifications. The good news of Jesus is that someone has thought of you even when you haven't thought of them, and that someone is God, the creator of the universe. 
because this parable is a little bit about hospitality. I think it's also about fidelity, faithfulness. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. The one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? The story then kind of cuts in the opposite direction as these stories often do. The grace of hospitality, that freeness and forgiveness, that making room holds intention, and it also is complemented by, and I don't think conflicts with, the expectations for faithfulness. Jesus gives a like Proverbs-like nugget, and I think this has probably been engraved on many a first checkbook given by a parent to their teen when they open up their first checking account, <laughs> that whoever's faithful with little will be faithful with much, with much responsibility, you know, sort of thing. It's also probably the opening index page of the biblical finance Bible studies, you know. But without turning this into a rule that handcuffs God into upping your responsibility and thereby your resource, I also think this is kind. there's kind of like a bit of wisdom and beauty in how simple this statement is. If you're faithful with little, you might be faithful with much but not necessarily the other way around. I think this actually describes how fidelity works. Faithfulness is never just in the big things, but especially in the constant things, the things which are rote, the things which are nearly invisible, the things which are hard to do, not because they're difficult or require a lot of skill, but because they require a lot of stamina. A lot of focus, a lot of intentionality. The things that you could probably get away with letting them slide a little bit. So if you want to learn what, it's, what it means, what it's like to be faithful and how to do it, first off, look to Jesus as an example and as a source of faithfulness. Jesus is the faithful one. The one who only traffics in faith. The author and finisher of our faith is what Hebrews says. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. The source of our faith. But also, if you want to learn how to be faithful, just start doing small things with great love and care and attention. Consider the small slew of responsibilities that you've already been given either by choice or necessity and see how these things are going run those diagnostics build slow and small the foundational bricks that are kind of subterranean need to be mortared just right to be able to hold the weight of the more visible and exciting things so that they can be straight and so they can be solid this parable is also about witness hospitality Fidelity and witness. Witness to the, the king and the kingdom. Witness to Jesus. Aside from the bracing commentary on hospitality and fidelity, the parable begins to witness to and imagine the very kingdom of God which has arrived in Jesus. Strangely, it has its own logic, which sometimes doesn't quite fit with ours. So this parable is confusing and scandalizing. That's probably right. The kingdom that's coming on earth 
that as it is in heaven actually has to take up residence in here even as it reclaims this earth and sometimes that happens comfortably sometimes it is a healing balm when it arrives it's release to the captives good news to the poor binding up brokenness sometimes it's also just strange and leaves a weird taste in our mouth sometimes it doesn't fit like it's a garment that is too big or too small for how we're nor normally used to living I, I read a review of a friend's music uh, like album last week in rolling stone and someone described one of his songs as crooked and he took it as a compliment i think jesus would also take that as a compliment such as the kingdom of god sometimes a little crooked it doesn't hang straight on the nail of the way things are or the way we expect them such as a strange king jesus when i'm reading these parables especially the parables that are that kind of feel weird and i don't i don't know if i really understand what's going on I often go to some of the crazier commentators and I think Robert Farr Capon is one of those his most famous work is actually a, a theological cookbook and like interspersed with these brilliant theological thoughts about God and grace but also like actual like recipes and he he's got uh, a book of awesome like hot take uh, parable uh, interpretations and here's what he, he said about this parable. He said, The unjust steward is nothing less than the Christ figure in the parable, a dead ringer for Jesus himself. Talk about something crooked, right? Talk about a witness. He says, First of all, he dies and rises like Jesus. Second, by his death and resurrection, he raises others like Jesus. But third and most important of all, the unjust steward is the Christ-like figure because he's a crook. Like Jesus, the unique contribution of this parable to our understanding of Jesus, the witness, is its insistence that grace cannot come to the world through respectability. Respectability regards only life, success, and winning. It will have no truck with the grace that works by death and losing, which, of course, is the only kind of grace there is. The good news of the kingdom of God is so tilted towards this kind of grace this sort of jubilee this forgiveness and freedom of every kind of debt it is so tilted that way that even preposterously imperfect ways to get there still act as a parable of the kingdom a hint an echo a facet of what ro logic rules in this new reality even though it seems incompatible or temporarily unjust it doesn't fit or it hangs crooked it's important, even as we learn about what God is like and how the kingdom works, to realize that at some point all of our metaphors will break down. At some point, our signposts and our maps won't really get us all the way there. We just need to keep going and not get frustrating that our world doesn't match with what we thought it would be like. This is what happens to resident aliens. They adapt. They improvise. They do their best and let God do the forgiving, even as we all continue to ask for forgiveness. This is an incredibly strange and freeing way to live. This is a world where even the, you fill in the blank, have a privileged place. Like fill in the blank with your version of a shady character who lacks the character to show what the kingdom looks like. And I'll show you someone 
who can actually show you something about God. That's what these parables do. They witness to this coming kingdom. It also tells us a little bit about Revelation because of the witness of this parable and like most parables teaches about how God speaks, how God unveils, how God makes known God's ways and thoughts which are far different and other than ours. If this parable of the kingdom shows us something about God's ironic justice through injustice, presents to us co-protagonists like the shady steward and the gracious imaginative boss are are both the like positive characters in the story. If that's the case, who else might be a co-protagonist in God's story? And where else might God's story be moving forward? There are literally endless possibilities. About nothing is too far out there to reveal something to us about God in the operations of God. Swiss theologian Karl Barth writes in his like massive work, Church Dogmatics, right at the very beginning about God's freedom and revelation. He says, God may speak to us through Russian communism, a flute concerto, a blossoming shrub. I imagine him looking out into his backyard as he writes this, or a dead dog. Anywhere where God speaks, we would do well to listen to him when he really does. I also think of the literary imagination of Flannery O'Connor, who's a Catholic writer in Georgia. And at times, like Jesus, she draws large and startling characters to get our attention. In her 1965 short story called Revelation, she writes about this character who's this genteel southern woman who thinks she's got it all together. Her name's Ruby Turpin, and maybe her name forecasts the kind of moral turpitude that she disguises as self-righteousness. And she receives revelation. She receives grace, not through a greeting card or a gentle word, but via a punch in the nose and someone screaming at her in a doctor's crowded waiting room, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Her point, in part, is that revelation unveils, but not necessarily gently. It doesn't suffer disguises. And so it also may scandalize us. It might strip away what was comfortable and reliable, It might even take away our money. (laughs) It might take away that which caused us not to really need a whole lot from God to get by. Like Jacob, early in God's story, an encounter with God might actually leave you limping. Like Ruby, you might wind up with a black eye and a bloody lip. Like the manager in this story, you might get the best and most productive and creative work out of your middle management at your own expense after you already fired the guy. So a couple questions that this generates for us. Are you creative and generous like the steward? Do you have the sort of creativity and generosity that doesn't rely on your desperation? That That you might be that generous and forgiving debt? That you might seek out friendships even when it's not your last resort? Are you forgiving and gracious like the certain boss? Like, does it take someone to cheat you, to open your eyes to the ways in which, um, Uh, You can actually see people for their gifts. Can you see and hear the kingdom and things that uh, on first glance make you kind of crinkle your nose, make you kind of look away? Can you actually see God with eyes and ears and open hands to respond? So lastly, I think um, this parable is about worship. 
Finally, the parable closes with, No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God in wealth, or God in mammon, as some of our translations say. This parable ends on an ominous note. This is a crisis parable, and it should create a little bit of a crisis in us. Like the Bob Dylan song from his Jesus Freak Years that I really love, we're left kind of with the statement that you got to serve somebody. For Dylan, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but Jesus and Luke's gospel, it may be God or it may be mammon. And mammon's kind of a, a word for security or wealth or greed or anxiety that acts as piety to this false god. Both of these things can't coexist. They can't live in a comfortable relationship with each other. That's not how worship works. That's not how our desire works. It's never an issue of whether or not we're desiring or worshiping, but what we're aimed towards. Our worship abhors a vacuum. The second you're worshiping something that is, by definition, not God. There's no brakes on this runaway train, and apart from God's wisdom and rest and joy and home that are given by God, there are no tracks either. To worship mammon, then, is to mistake the cause and the effect to elevate the good gifts from God to the place of God. Lately, I've been reading this uh, new book by James K. Smith on St. Augustine, and he uses this extended travel metaphor, and he describes this this way. He says, There is joy in the journey precisely when we don't try to make a home out of our car, so to speak. There is love on the road when we stop loving the road. There is a myriad of gifts along the way when we remember that it's a way. There is delight in the sojourn when we know where home is. To worship mammon is to forget that there even is a home. It's, it's to love the way, the journey, to make a home out of your car. The good news, though, is that if we're worshiping God inside, if we're serving God inside of our worship and service of God, that we can actually find home in rest, in provision, in safety, in security, in joy, all the things that we were probably looking for in other places. As Second Peter puts it, by God's divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who has called us by his own honor and glory. God's honor. God's glory, our life overflowing and abundant, our godliness, knowledge, revelation, joining with God, everything we need, more than we need, so we don't have to bypass the source of all security and creation and provision and grace and creativity and generosity to attempt to be that for ourselves or to give that for ourselves. Like the younger son or the scheming steward, the certain one cares for us. God has given us all we have and beyond what we could hope for. So as we go this week, instead of serving, instead of worshiping, instead of spending our time and our thoughts and our heart on some cruel faker who feels good but actually might be a tyrant, instead of going home to serve our father as a slave, we're invited to come back as daughters and sons in this bizarre economy, this household of God. Will you pray with me?
Lord, continue to open up space for us as your friends. And provide for us friends that might know us and love us and um, expect faithful responses from us. Grow these relationships uh, even as you reveal yourself to us through them. Open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might hear from you. And like the Psalms say, um, dig our ears out so that we might hear your word. Give us imaginations to see you in everything, in everyone. There are no mere mortals, only uh, people made in your image. And you speak through many messengers. Uh, thanks, Lord, for um, the way uh, that you um, tell stories and include us in your story. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.